Welcome into the BSM Buffs podcast presented by the wonderful Blake Street Tavern. I am Sam Weaver and I am here with Chase Howell. We are about to uh, talk a little bit about that pretty brutal loss to Arizona and then we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, upcoming road games the Buffs have. First one against Oregon State and second one against Washington State and uh, we'll get into that a little bit more later in the week with our second podcast but let's start with Arizona. Let's start with... um, uh, Khalil Tate setting a FBS record with 327 rushing yards and three touchdowns as a backup quarterback scored on the Buffs this weekend. Chase, what happened to the defense? Uh, they couldn't tackle the man. I think as you were saying that 327 number, it dawned on me that that's probably the first time that I've ever memorized a rushing yards number like after the game. For an opponent. Yeah, yeah. especially for an opponent. But even some, like... Sometimes I can remember Montez's numbers like two days later, but most of the time it just goes right by. 327 will probably never leave my head. I've written it like 12 times. and I mean, I, I know Phil Lindsay had 281 because he broke CU's uh, all-time, all-purpose yardage record, which is awesome. We're going to talk about Phil a little bit later, but you're right. That number uh, sticks with you. I think it's going to stick with the buffs for a long time. Yeah, and they probably never want to see that happen again. The last time that they gave up that many yards uh, on the ground was also against Arizona when Kadeem Carey was the running back. He ran for like 371, which is the Arizona record. And Khalil Tate is obviously second on that list now. And not even a running back, kids. That is a quarterback doing that to the Buffs defense. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. So uh, we talked uh, a little bit earlier about how that was probably – a lot of that was broken coverage, right? A lot of those came on bigs, like 50, 70 yard plus touchdown runs. But um, it, it kind of seemed like the Buffs made some adjustments when Cleo came in at quarterback and they saw that he was kind of going to run it a lot. And then the adjustments just didn't work. And that almost is scarier to me than like a couple broken tackles because it kind of seems like they didn't really know what to do when they were presented with something they didn't prepare for. Yeah, it seems to me like the Buffs got dominated schematically in that game you would expect CU to know a little bit about what Arizona wanted to do in that game and it just looked like they didn't they weren't expecting the read option they weren't expecting Khalil Tate to be as fast as he was there weren't guys that were staying home on the edge as they should and they were just letting them kind of run all over them they didn't care yeah you said something to me earlier about uh the secondary was in man coverage like the whole game so um if you want to talk a little bit about that, I mean, that was that was your analysis there. Well, it's just interesting because if you're going up against a rushing quarterback, you should try to keep your eyes on them as much as possible. Right. And when you're in man for the corners, their, their eyes are locked on the receivers. So there were a ton of plays where the corners were just running downfield, whether it was Dante Wigley or Isaiah Oliver, whichever side it was, and they didn't even know that Khalil Tate was running the ball. Well, and I see... I see letting one of those touchdowns get away, right? Especially when you're talking about a backup quarterback, especially when you've prepared for a different signal caller. I get that when your whole like game plan all week has been for somebody else. But once he did that to you once, you should have done everything in your power. That was like pretty much the only impact their offense really had. They, they had a good run game outside of their quarterback too. But, I mean, you gotta you got to be able to like stop. I don't know if you can't adjust mid game to something that's as simple as this quarterback is running at you. I I don't know what to do. It seemed like CU was just was like, all right, it's his night. We're not going to be able to stop him. So we're going to try to score more than they do. And they just weren't able to do that. It wasn't a very good game plan because 
how are you going to outscore a guy that literally takes it to the house every time he gets into open that's space? A terrible game plan. It's like handing Tyreek Hill the football every offense. That's like what it felt like last night. It was like watching Tyreek Hill take it to the house all the time. I know Tyreek Hill's a wide receiver, but I'm just saying it was like that kind of like just gone. And I, I just. I don't know. It was like so hard to watch the Buffs do that. And then trying to match it on offense was almost just as upsetting. We were talking about this. The The passing game still hasn't gotten going. We're like halfway through the season. What's what's happening with the wide receivers? Yeah, everybody talked about before the season about how good the Blackout Boys were going to be. And they're just not the same Blackout Boys that we even saw last year. And they are all of the same guys. It's not like they graduated anyone. They're just... Not getting open like they were last year. Yeah. So Chase and I today, um, I, I, I talked to Devin Ross and Chase talked to Shea Fields. And we kind of, our, our questions were in the same vein, right? Like, what is happening? Why is the pass, why is the passing game not getting clicking? Like, what what is going on with you guys? And um, I asked Dev, is it like, is it play calling? Is it that you guys aren't getting separation? Is it... Um, is it a chemistry thing? Is it what, like what's going on out there? And he was like, you know, I think it's a little bit of everything. It feels like we're just not the same as we were last year. And I mean, I think that's, that's how everybody feels is like, they don't look the same at all. And we've, we've put a lot of that on them not getting separation, but, um, Dev definitely had separation this week. I saw Shay have separation this week. So it's not just that. I mean, there's, there's obviously issues going on with, something else i i kind of want to blame it on play calling as much as i do the wide receivers yeah shay shay wasn't as quick to blame it on play calling today it was more of a chemistry thing with him but i think they're kind of dumbfounded about it because they do work together a lot it's not like that this is the first time that montez and shay have ever thrown together they do practice this and they do take time after practice to try to get that chemistry going between each other and then you get into a game situation and Montez just couldn't get that timing down with Shea. I mean, I, I know that Montez overthrew Shea a couple of times and I'm not necessarily trying to knock him, but I think it's an example of a bigger problem on this offense, which is that like Shea wants to play in the NFL, right? Shea is, I mean, in a lot of ways, Shea is an NFL quality wide receiver. So if he wants to play at the next level when his quarterback is overthrowing him and it's not like a major overthrow. Shea needs to at least try to get up there and get it. He needs to fight for it. He needs to fight for the ball. He needs to get up there and go after it. And it kind of seemed like every time Montez overthrew him this week, he was more interested in like, I don't know, giving the quarterback a dirty look and being kind of grumpy about being overthrown instead of really trying to make plays. That's what it looked like to me. And I think that's what it looked like to a lot of bus fans and maybe even some of their teammates because it, it just didn't look like they were given that much effort out there. It, it was like they just don't care anymore. And it's not just Shea. It's pretty much all across the board on the wide receivers. But Shea was noticeable in this past game because he got a ton of targets that he just wasn't able to make the grab on. And it was disappointing because you expect Shea to make the catch every time he's open on a deep ball. Like It's Shea Fields. That's what he does. It's big play Shea. And yet... Right. He just couldn't haul it in, and it's between effort and timing, and it was a little bit of both on multiple throws. There's sometimes where Montez just throws it too late, and Shea's already gone or what have you, but there's just something wrong that they're just not clicking right now. Yeah, and it's it's not all on Shea, and I don't mean to say it like that by any means, but I was actually I was talking to my mom about this earlier, and uh, I was telling her that, like, 
if, if it's me, right, if I'm a senior and this is my last year to try to convince people to draft me into the NFL, I'm calling Steven Montez on Sunday and I'm saying, hey, man, like we need to get our chemistry working. We need to meet outside of practice. We need to do whatever we can to get things clicking. I don't I'm, I'm not trying to say that they should have no free time and that this is all they should do. But like when it's not working to this extent, like something's got to give. They either have to fix something or they're going to kind of let their senior seasons go by and kind of put their futures in the NFL at risk because that's kind of what it looks like right now. Like two scores over six games for Shea, three over six games for Bobo. I mean, that's they're falling rounds right now. To me, it kind of sounded um, today when I was talking to Shea that they've been working a lot these last few days. It's that there's kind of more of a sense of urgency that they need to start clicking. They need to start finding that chemistry in I didn't ask Shay specifically, but I kind of feel like that's what Shay woke up Sunday morning thinking is we got to work on it and we got to get better. No, that's great. I, I hope that's the attitude they have. I mean, obviously, I just I haven't seen that yet and it hasn't come to fruition yet. And if that's what they're doing, then that's fantastic. That's exactly what I think they should be doing. Um, I I know Mont has talked about it a little bit yesterday. He did kind of like a huddle with a bunch of us in the media after practice. And he said, I, I feel like it's. Uh, reps thing I feel he blamed he said it was a reps thing like I don't think that we have done enough of these deep balls and these mid-range balls and I don't think that we are as he didn't say we're not as prepared but he basically said something to that effect like we need to just keep doing it more and more and more if we're going to get it going but what do they do in practice every day right exactly also we're we're halfway through the season so like how have you not kind of been doing that and I just I agree with it that it probably means more reps but you would also think that they would have gotten all the reps done by now. Um, and they're just trying to get more in to try to build some chemistry because I think there is some chemistry there. They're just not fully clicking on all c- cylinders like we kind of expected. I don't know. They seem mad. Like, Dev seemed frustrated when I was interviewing him today. And I know Shay's frustrated. You can see it in his face. You saw it on the field on Saturday. He was frustrated. I mean, um, Bryce Bobo, when. That game was running out when the clock was running out at the end of that game. Bryce Bilbo slammed his helmet into the side of like one of the big things down on the sideline there where the team is standing. And I mean, they're visibly frustrated and I understand they're all kind of looking down the barrel of this like, oh my gosh, this season isn't just going badly. It's messing with our futures kind of thing. Yeah, but they got to show it on the field. They got to show that frustration when they're chasing after a ball or making a block and there's a lot of times when they just don't and they just give up on plays so it works both ways like they can be as frustrated as they want to be with play calling or whatever but they still got to show it on the field with their effort no I agree and I think I think that's kind of been the mantra um today and yesterday and I mean even kind of Saturday after the game in the press conferences that we've had since then have been um this team's angry. This team's finally angry. And I, I so hope that that is true, but it just to me seems like they should have gotten angry a long time ago. They should have gotten angry after Washington, after UCLA. And like, how many times are they going to tell us like, yeah, we're angry this week. We talked about them fighting in practice on the last podcast and we thought they were going to be angry. And it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like they are. They should have been angry after the Oklahoma state game, after the bowl game. You're so right. They should have come in week one and just been angry about how they looked on national television those last two games yeah and they i mean there's no sense of urgency there there's nothing that would tell you that they are angry in any of these games i mean you could just look at the tackling on defense in this past game if i mean that's the best way to tell is how hard they're they tackle and 
obviously they weren't bringing them down at all. So they're clearly not playing angry. How how do you get them to be a little bit pissed off? That's probably what Coach Mack is trying to do. So I have a solution, and it's going to be the same solution that I proposed next or last week, which is put the younger wide receivers in. Remind the seniors that they can get benched. Remind them that this isn't just their team because of how old they are. Like, I, why didn't we see LaVisca this week? And, like, why did we only see Juwan in for, like, really limited snaps when he was obviously, like, having an impact when he was out there? I'm going to keep saying the same thing. I don't think anybody should lose their starting job, but I think you need to remind those players that when they're not making plays, they belong on the bench. Yeah, I think there needs to be a message that is sent, and we haven't seen that message yet. I mean, this wasn't the first game that we've saw, seen a lack of effort from this wide receiver core, and we haven't seen that message sent yet that you you have to perform on the field to get playing time because clearly they're not performing, and there are a ton of options. You could go all the way down the list of guys that they could throw in you mentioned Visca and Winfrey, but there's also KD. You could take the red shirt off KB on Ento, oh Johnny yes. Hunley. There's a, a ton of guys that are more than worthy of some playing time, and they just haven't thrown them in yet. So when are you going to send that message? Yeah, I mean, we're not sitting here saying that, like, right after Washington, you should bench everybody who has a good game. But, like, I I think this is important, and I think this is an important message for the like vibe in that locker room. And I think it's an important message for um, like this football team moving forward. If you are not making plays, Devin Ross said that to me today. He said, the more plays you make, the more balls you get. And that should be how it is. And none of these wide receivers are making plays, not at least not on a regular basis, not enough to be the only people on the field. Yeah. And you talk about the message that it sends. And I mean, I'm sitting here kind of wondering, Coach Chev wants to have a very deep, receiving core but what's the point of having a deep receiving core if you only play the seniors all the time and what kind of message is that saying to your younger players that they're just going to end up playing the seniors yeah exactly like it doesn't matter how hard you come in and work LaVisca Katie all of you younger players because the seniors are going to keep their jobs no matter what that's not a great message to send you know and and I think the other thing is that there's there's not a team captain that's a wide receiver. And I think that kind of speaks volumes when you talk about like this being a group that should, that has a ton of veteran leadership in it. Like one of those players should have stepped up. And when you kind of ask the younger wide receivers, like, Oh, who's helping you or whatever it is, they're all kind of like, Oh yeah. You know, everybody, when you ask the defense, they say Isaiah Oliver, they say Afalabe Lagoodle. Like Rick they Gimbal. give you, they give you an answer. Yeah. Rick, they give you an answer. And the offense is never really able to do that outside of saying like Phil Lindsay, Jeremy or winner leaders. They don't really, the wide receivers have never been able to give me an answer. And I think that's huge. I mean, one of those players of those seniors should have stepped up in a big way this year and none of them have. Yeah. It's something we just didn't talk about before the season, but I think it is a very important point. Who is the leader of the receiving core and why isn't one of them captain? I mean, Bobo Fields and Ross have all been starting for I mean, this is obviously their second year, but they've had a bunch of playing time before that. Fields has been starting for longer than that. For four years. Yeah. So how do you not pull a leader out of someone that has been playing that much? You find the Jeremy Irwins, the Phil Lindsays. Usually guys that have been around for that long are able to lead this team. And clearly by not picking a captain from one of those three, you're just showing that there isn't a leader. And we've heard it from the younger guys as well. Well, what an important position to like have a leader represent, you know what I mean? Like this is one of the biggest parts of your offense and, and I just, it doesn't seem like any one of them wants to 
be that person for the team. And I don't, I, I don't, I could be totally wrong. There could be a totally different reason that none of them is a team captain, but it just seems kind of weird to me that like all of those guys who have been there and been in their position and doing well at their position for so long aren't, aren't really in that role. Yeah, it's kind of why we call wide receiver the diva position, and it it doesn't matter what team it is. I'm sure a bunch of teams in college football have the same problem. Teams in the NFL always have this problem yeah. because almost all NFL wide receivers are divas. So DeAndre Hopkins is a wonderful. I'm, I'm sorry, I got I got a little Texas girl there for a second, but go ahead, Chase. <laughs> well, yeah, but so it's it's just a sort of a diva problem that CU has in they kind of have to get that out of their heads and maybe that's by sending a message to them by benching them by whatever you have to do but they kind of have to get rid of that diva mentality and start playing for the team talk about i mean Devin Ross is a nice guy he uh tweeted after the game feed two like more than once we were twice, just looking yeah. at his twitter he did it twice and i get what he's saying right like dev only had one target in that game that's got to be frustrating Dev also wears like a little hat around campus that has the number two on it and stuff like that. We were just kind of yeah, talking. Yeah, he has two different number two hats. Yeah, they're kind of like the Chance the Rapper hats with the three, but they're the two for Devin Ross. But I don't know. I mean, that just kind of seems weird to me. I don't feel like I would ever see Phil Lindsay or Isaiah Oliver out there wearing their own number on campus like that. I don't know. So I don't know if that speaks to the attitude thing. I mean, I don't know Dev personally or anything, but it just it kind of seems like they came into the season expecting to get their targets because of who they are. And they felt like they didn't need to work for it. And it's kind of rippled through the whole offense and it's obvious. Okay. So the next kind of line of thought has to be how, how did these first three games maybe not prepare CU for PAC 12 play? Like maybe playing Texas state in Northern Colorado and sorry Rams fans, but CSU, how did that maybe not prepare the buffs to take on Washington right after? Like the schedule was kind of a disservice to them. I think it was definitely a disservice to them. Um, I saw this point on Twitter, which is why I'm talking about it. I think it was a great point because how are you going to go from playing a UNC and a Texas State to playing three pretty tough Pac-12 teams? Like it's a, it's a lot to yeah, it's a <laughs> lot to ask from your football team to kind of make that switch, turn that switch on to Pac-12 play, and I think it really hurt them that they had to play Texas State and UNC, and it's not all their fault because when they made their non-conference schedule, they were a Big 12 team. So they had a couple Pac-12 teams scheduled. I don't remember what they were. So they, Texas State and UNC were a late switch once they joined the Pac-12. So it wasn't all their fault, but still, it's it's tough on your team. I I just kind of feel like we talked about this before the season started. And I'm not saying the schedule didn't have an impact. I'm saying I feel like it's an excuse. And I think that the point that got made on Twitter, we both saw that. I think that's a good point. I do. But I just – this this offense – with um, how high the expectations were, should have gone in and just nailed all three of these teams. Like, they should have been putting up 50, 60 points a game. Maybe I'm a little carried away, but like 50, 60 points a game, it feels like. And when the defense came out and was playing as well as the defense has been playing, they should have been playing lights out for three weeks. It should have looked like they were playing Division two schools the whole time, and then when they switched into Pac-12 play, they would have been ready. And it seems like they were just kind of playing down to their opponents. Yeah, well, what you want those games to do is build confidence for your team, and I just don't think that they gained much confidence from either of those games because they were too too close, really. They were too close for comfort, 
and they weren't able to build any confidence heading into Washington, and that's kind of a problem. Had they dominated Texas State and USC and put up 50-something points, 60-something points, then I think you could say that those games weren't as big of a problem because of build confidence heading into the Pac-12 schedule. So it's a little bit of both, I think. It's so it's not just about building confidence, which I do think is a good point. That's what these games could have been. But I think really what they ended up being was this preview of this offense that was just never going to get it together. So I think that these three games were in theory like not the worst idea but when the offense is kind of able to skate by with all these misfires and all these problems that they're having and then they get faced with a real defense they don't know what to do and I think I think in that way it was like a major disservice to them but I feel like that's more on the offense not ever really getting things together than I think it is on the schedule yeah because it'd probably be even worse to have to play two really good teams and get blown out um so there's, it's just a tough, tough line. Like if the expectations were right for this team, they would have dominated those two games and been cruising into Pac-12 play just fine. But what happened was they just kind of stumbled through those two games and then they ended up losing their first three games. I don't know if it would have been worse for them to play two tough teams like right out of the gate like okay so maybe maybe it like damages their confidence right and they just like are kind of ashamed going into Pac-12 play but I mean maybe honestly they get a wake-up call earlier in the season and they have more time to right the ship instead of thinking like oh we're three and oh everything's fine heading into Washington and then just everything explodes but they have had some early wake-up calls already this season I mean those two games should have been wake-up calls and then Washington should have been a wake-up call, and UCLA should have been a wake-up call, and now Arizona looks like is the wake-up call, but it's taken them a little too long, so I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting hypothetical. Um, the good news is next season they have Nebraska on the non-conference schedule, and I think also uh, New Hampshire, which is obviously a cupcake game, but at least they play one good team, and it's at Nebraska. It's a very tough environment to go play. It'll kind of groom you to get ready for the Pac-12 I'm under the impression that I would want to play the better teams in my non-conference schedule. I'd want to schedule at least one or two Power 5 games so that your team is ready because in Pac-12, all that matters is your Pac-12 schedule or your Pac-12 record to play in the Pac-12 championship. So if you want to focus on that, I'd want to prepare my team as best I could, and that would probably be playing high-level competition. No, I agree. I, I mean, that's that's kind of how I feel. Is like uh, one cupcake game at like week one. I don't think is a bad idea to like get your feet wet, kind of shake the dust off. That's what CSU is supposed to be. Right, exactly. So I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think following that up with these games that build like almost this false arrogance among your team. Like, oh yeah, we're three zero, and like, and clearly you're not ready for Pac-12 play. And I just. I, I don't know. We we got asked a question on Twitter today, actually, about um, our biggest concerns for the rest of the season. And I think Chase and I both agree here. I think the biggest concern is, is this Buffs team still capable of being bowl eligible? Yeah, that would be my biggest concern as we sit right here is, um, will this team make a bowl game? Because that's a big step in this whole rise process, if you want to look at it as as a whole is they got to go a few consecutive years of bowl games. And if they don't, it 
it just looks bad. It, lo- it looks like your program isn't going in the right direction. So as we sit here, CU has six games left. They need to win three of them to go to a bowl game. Um, there's six games that are very, very tough. Four road games that are three of them are going to be really tough to play in those environments. I mean, Washington State, USC, and Utah all look like losses to me on the board right now, which means CU doesn't have a ton of wiggle room to like lose to Oregon State, which they very well could with this coaching turnover and it being a road game and the Buffs just kind of not really knowing what's going on with their offense. I mean, th- I think at the beginning of the season, I never would have said, oh, I think there's a possibility that the Buffs don't make a bowl. I honestly thought that they were just going to ease themselves in there and it wasn't going to be a problem. And now it's like, are are the Buffs going to make a bowl? Are, are we just, it's, I don't know. If you look at, yeah, you, you mentioned it. Washington State, USC, Utah, all on paper right now look like pretty solid losses. And then you have to go play at Arizona State which the way this team has looked right now, you don't really trust them going into a tough environment and winning that game. And then Cal coming here is also going to be a really tough game. Cal has played very well this season, above expectations at least. I mean, before the season, you probably look at that game and think automatic win. That's going to be a really good game here in Boulder. So there's just <laughs> there's six tough games that it's hard to say that they're going to pull three of those out. I think I think it is worth mentioning that when we're talking about the rise overall and taking this team seriously, if I look at this Buffs team on paper for next year, I'm excited about the offense. I think the offense is going to get like a pretty big overhaul with all the seniors leaving and I think I I think that they have potential to like even if they have a misstep this year and they don't make it to a bowl. I don't think the rise is necessarily going to be over for the long term. I think that they could potentially drop this season and still play really well over the next couple of years and be fine and people would take them seriously. But when you are a program that everybody is talking about how last year was a fluke and has been talking about how last year was a fluke, this is not the way to go about it. You know what I mean? Like this is not the impression you want to send. So I, I don't know. I think, I think Chase and I have a couple answers to this question about our biggest concerns for the rest of the season. And obviously we've talked a lot about the offense, not getting going, I think one of the other problems is that both of the lines look not great. Like the offensive line and defensive line both have talented players on them. I mean, Jeremy Irwin, you said, uh, was the highest graded, what? Tackle. Okay, tackle, uh, not offensive line. Tackle on uh, pro football focus. And then, I mean, the defensive line has has some really talented players on it, but neither of those lines has like gotten it together and looked solid this season and definitely not at the same time. They definitely have problems in the trenches. That's kind of, I mean, that's pretty obvious. It was obvious in the Washington game that they just don't have what it takes to play at the highest level of the Pac-12 in the trenches, Um, especially the the defensive line. They can't get any push right now. They can't get any pass rush. We talked a lot about this last week, and we wanted them to improve. for the Arizona game, and they didn't look improved at all. And part of that is maybe Javier Edwards getting him, picking up an injury um, in the middle of the game and them having to play Jace Frankie at nose tackle. But, I mean, there are some other guys on that defensive line that just aren't getting the push that they need right now. And then on the other side of the ball, I think we're going to get into that a little bit um, later, but they're slowly but surely getting there, and... 
I to me they look better each week. This week they looked pretty rough in pass protection, um, but I think they looked really good in in run blocking, and they created some huge holes for Philip Lindsay. So they are just borderline okay right now, but that defensive line just looks abysmal. So I think the important part about the offensive line getting better, well, obviously there's a lot of important parts, but when we're talking about the offense not getting going, we're talking about uh, how the buffs have been missing those middle length and like deep balls all season. Like they haven't really been there. And we were just kind of talking about uh, these stats with Montez, but I mean, there's, there's also the, the buffs biggest play of the season was a 44 yard pass to Shea Fields. And Shea is called big play Shea for a reason, right? Like he has, um, I think it says nine 50 plus yard plays on his career and he hasn't had one in 15 consecutive games now. And I mean, 44 is close. I'm not trying to like knock that, but I'm saying that the deep ball has been so missing from this team this year. And I mean, Chase is going to talk a little bit about Montez's statistics on that, but I mean, it's just been ugly. Well, yeah. And going into the season, like we've referenced multiple times, um, you would consider it, one of Montez's strengths is the deep ball. He has a beautiful deep ball. Comes out of his hands, I mean, like like magic. It's so pure. He is probably the best arm I've ever seen just in front of my face live, watching him warm up. And so you kind of think that that's one spot where he'd be really good at it, and he's been awful. And we don't know if that's chemistry with the receivers or if he's just been missing on all those throws. But... As we sit right now, he's 3 for 17 on throws that are 30 yards or more and 11 for 25. For 35. For 30, 11 for 35 on throws that are 20 yards or more. So it's just, he's just not finding them. And it's one of two things, like I mentioned, because he definitely has the arm strength to get it there. And he just can't connect with his receivers as, as we sit here right now. Well, and that's when you're talking about Montez's deep ball being one of his strengths, then, and it's not working this season, then you would turn around and kind of expect him to not have receivers who excel in that area. But Bryce Bilbo and Shea Fields, both so capable of making those kind of plays. We've seen them do it. I mean, Bryce Bilbo's catch at, what was it, Oregon? Oregon, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I just, I, I just, they're so capable of it. And I think that is what is so frustrating this season is looking at all of the pieces that they need to be successful and them just not gelling. Yeah, and even <laughs> Devin Ross. I mean, how many times did he make a big play last year? He, yeah. He's perfect on that post-slant route that he he loves, <laughs> slot post route that he loves to run, and he gets open. And yet this year he... I mean, I think maybe Montez has missed him once or twice on a deep ball just off the top of my head. But it just doesn't seem like he's getting open on that deep ball as much as he was last year. And so it's a combination of a lot of different things. But it's definitely the major reason why this offense isn't clicking on all cylinders is they just can't find that big play. Well, and we talked a little bit earlier about, or I did, about um, Shea not going up and fighting for that football this weekend, especially, right? Because, like, we're starting to pay more and more attention to that as this kind of continues to be a big problem. And, I mean, like, one of those, at least one of those passes was overthrown. I know one of them was underthrown. And then some of that was just, like, really good defense by Arizona secondary. They, like, ripped a ball out of Shea's hand at least once, maybe twice. And I... I think it's just neither of them were like hugely overthrown or underthrown. And I, 
I, I don't know. I'm just, it's, it's frustrating me right now to kind of try to even think or figure out what is just missing there because it's, it would totally change this offense if they got the deep ball back. Like, yeah, and it's got to be frustrating for them as well. That's what, I mean, Montez literally can make his money off of the deep ball. That's how good of a deep ball he throws. It's way better than the ball that Sefo Lufau used to throw, but yet Sefo connected on deep balls way more than Montez does. And so they just need to kind of build that chemistry, and I think that's what's kind of pissing them off right now is they feel like they have built that chemistry over time, and it's just not there when it shows up in games. So they are trying to find it, and I think they're pretty they're struggling at it is basically what it is. Well, I think that's frustrating, too, is that, I mean, A, Montez played last year in several games. Like, what, five games last year? More Started than that. A he, like, played he played in, in a like, lot. ten of them. Yeah, he played in, yeah, but, um, and, I mean, they had all spring together. Like, they had all fall camp. They had all summer if they, like, oh, I mean, they're not allowed to, like, be there with coaches. Well, they work with each other all summer, right, exactly. though. They do work out. So, but they didn't because we know that they were, like, gone for a lot of the summer. So, I, I just... I, I don't know what it is. I, I'm kind of I'm kind of done with making excuses for them, and I just it, it kind of just it needs to get better. There's no excuse for this offense to not be good, in my opinion. There's no excuse, even if the offensive line is struggling. You guys have to figure out a way to make it work. The second part of that question that we got on Twitter was, um, "What is your biggest or what are your biggest concerns going forward under this coaching staff?" and I think there are a lot of concerns when it comes to the coaching staff, especially moving forward. I mean, you kind of talk about um, how much of Mac's success last year was maybe partially Jim Levitt or how good is DJ Elliott actually in this defense. So let's, let's kind of start with that. Yeah. So there's two pretty important points about the defensive coordinator here. Um, is this, was the reason for the defensive success last year because of Jim Levitt or was it because of Mike McIntyre, or maybe a little bit of both. And that's kind of what we're trying, we're figuring out now. Um, at first, and through, well, maybe just the CSU game, but even those other two games, the defense looked good. We were kind of thinking that, oh, it's just McIntyre's system. It's the same system. It still looks good. It still looks the way that they ran it last year. And now, as we sit here now, Maybe Mac is really good at defending the pass and really knows how how to coach these defensive backs up, but has absolutely no idea how to coach up a defensive line. And maybe that was one of Jim Levitt's real strengths, and that's what we're seeing now. Um, I'm not really sure about the answer to that, honestly. And obviously, I know that it's different when you're like down on the field and stuff like that, but... Watching those games, I kind of in my head was like, come on, guys. Like, I could have made this adjustment by now. And I I can see what's not working and what you need to do to fix it. And if, if I could, like, you should be able to see that. And you should be able to, more importantly, you should be able to, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Enforce that? In... Implement. Implement that. Thank you, Chase. Yeah, you should be able to implement that. That's so much of your job is being able to do that. And I don't, I don't really know what's going on with DJ Elliott because this isn't all on Mac. I know that Mac is like very heavily invested in the secondary, but it's not all on him. DJ Elliott has to be making these changes too. And he's obviously not either. Yeah. And we really haven't figured out DJ Elliott yet. I think because in against CSU, I was praising him because I think he had a perfect scheme against that team. And now 
we're watching this defense and they haven't been so hot the last three weeks. And so we kind of have to start questioning him. Um, I don't think we know enough about him. I don't think we know enough about his influence as of right now to really make a good judgment on him. But as of, yeah, I think he's definitely struggling and he's not the same guy that Jim Levitt was for sure. I think you're right. And I think that has to be an area of concern moving forward. I will say that the defense has like so far exceeded most people's expectations this year. Even when they've struggled, they've still played so much better overall than a lot of people expected them to. I'm not going to like write DJ Elliott off and say that I think he's doing a bad job just yet, but somebody on that sideline has to figure out how to make adjustments on defense and somebody has to figure out how to do it on offense or like get them going. And I, I'm not 100% sure what's going on there either. But the other one of the other questions we have is about um, another another defensive coach, our defensive line coach. Well, yeah, just another c- concern going forward is um, what is Jim Jeffcoat's place in this coaching staff? Because as of now, we see a defensive line that's incredibly weak. And give him the credit, last year he had three really good defensive linemen, three defensive linemen that – went on to try out for some NFL teams, didn't end up making any of them, but three good defensive linemen that he developed nicely. But um, that was more about developing the players instead of the, I mean, getting good players in that work for your system. That's just something that Jeff Coe has kind of struggled with, and he got lucky with Josh Tupo and Samson Cafavalu because they kind of had an extra year to develop and get bigger because of the suspension. So, um I don't know. I just think that he hasn't brought in the talent that needs that he needs to to play at this level. There hasn't been that many big defensive line recruits recently. Uh, he brings in two JUCO guys this year that are currently starting, but you don't really want JUCO guys to just turn around and start for your team. You want to kind of develop those guys, and it's only JUCO guys that Jim Jeffcoat's been able to find so far. So you, I. I'm going to question his recruiting, and as of now, we can question the way he coaches because this defensive line just is not good right now at all. I think those are two really good points, Chase. I mean, I was about to defend him a little bit because I I love the starting defensive line. I love Leo Jackson. I, I, I think you're right. Beyond that, there is so little depth in this area, and you're right. You don't want to have Juco's coming in and just playing, even if it is um, – somebody like Javier Edwards, who's done a pretty good job, but is now injured and he's injured on the depth chart for this week. And yeah, s- side they, note, so is Trey Udofia. They don't have any depth with their linemen. I mean, you go <laughs> Javier Edwards gets hurt and they have to bring in Jace Frankie to start at nose tackle, who is what, 270 maybe at best. Not, not a good look. Yeah, it's not someone you want starting at nose tackle and they just don't have any depth at all. Yeah, you're right. There's no depth. That, I mean, there are only... I mean, I don't I don't mean this in a weird way, but there are like not a ton of names that I'm super familiar with. I know who the backups are, but they're not players that I'm like, oh, I've, I know a lot about them. And that's I mean, that's kind of crazy. We know a lot about all of the backups at most of the positions. And this is one of the few areas where I'm like, I don't know that much about those players. Yeah. Once you get to the third stringers, it's guys. Who, I mean, most people have never heard of Tariq Roberts, Terrence Lang, those types of guys. But I don't know. I just think that. They need to. Maybe they need a nickname, like Money Gang and Blackout Boys. They, that's like a really good recruiting tool. Maybe the defensive line needs a nickname. So I'm gonna we'll ask them about that this yeah. week. 
I mean, I always think of Trench Mob, but that's just such a normal defensive line nickname. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I asked uh, Jeremy Irwin about the nickname for the offensive line, and he said we're just some tough-ass MFers is what he told me. And I was like, you you get him, Jeremy Irwin. That's <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's probably the best nickname of them all, honestly. It would be great if they were playing a little bit more <laughs> like that. I would so get behind that. I would uh, wear that t-shirt. Jeremy Irwin, to his credit, plays like that. He's not afraid to run out. Run over and hit someone, but it's the rest of the offensive line that don't have that kind of dog mentality. When Jeremy Irwin's a team captain, we come back to like having this huge area of your team that's not represented. There's six team captains on this team and not a single wide receiver anywhere. Just coming back to that. Um, okay, so I think that we want to talk You just love bit. to burn the wide receivers. I don't know why I'm so angry right now about that. I think it's just frustrating. I think it's, I think it's one of the most frustrating things we've had to talk about well, all it's season. All anyone in the media did and probably any of the fans did before the season was talk up how good these blackout boys are going to be, how many weapons they have on offense. How they had to redshirt people because they had so much talent. Like they literally had to burn red shirts because of it. Yeah. So, I mean, it is it's incredibly disappointing because they're just not performing at the level that they should. So I don't blame you for that, but I guess we probably need to move on from I'm not trying to dog on them. The wide receivers know that I love them. They're all they're all very nice people. But um let's let's talk a little bit about getting to Chase did his fantastic game grades, which will be happening every Saturday right after the game. For your, right. if you didn't get to catch the game and you want to tune in and see who did well and who didn't, you can check out that. Or um, even if you did catch the game but just aren't good at evaluating people, you can also that you just want Chase to tell you uh, how awesome Jeremy Irwin is or Drew Lewis. Just or look at him and see if you agree or disagree with me, and then at me about it on Twitter. And if it's a mean ad, I probably just won't reply. Well, start all the Twitter fights with Chase, please. It's so funny he gets very invested um okay so let's let's get into our hot or not which is gonna be like pretty similar to chase's game grades every week but uh hot and we've been saving this and i know a lot of you are probably like why haven't you talked about phil Lindsay this week yet because he is freaking fantastic and phil Lindsay is the man all the time but this week he sets cu's a new record for all-time all-purpose yards phil Lindsay is just a beast 41 carries 281 yards. 41. 41 times he carried that rock. And somebody asked him that today in the press conference. They were like, when was the last time you carried the ball 41 times? And he was like, never. Nope. Never happened. And even like all the way back to, what did they say? Like, like peewee, peewee football. And he was like, nope, I've never carried the rock that many times. So that man got a workout on Saturday. And I mean, he was just incredible. I mean, even Devin Ross was talking about how, his targets went or like he didn't have very many targets because they kept putting in these uh, setups that were two tight ends instead of slot receivers to give Phil some extra blocking. So, I mean, they were just all in on Phil this week and he was incredible. Yeah. He, he was the game plan and the game plan worked out offensively. At least Um, the only reason that they kept on putting up points and matching Arizona punch for punch was because of Philip Lindsay and what they were able to do in the run game. I mean, personally, I enjoyed that drive where it was just Phil, 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 Bo, Bo, and then Phil, 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 Phil. And, I mean, Arizona couldn't stop it. You knew that the run was coming, and they just couldn't do anything about it. It was kind of like Khalil Tate, except Khalil Tate took it to the house every time where Phil was like a good 10, 20 yards every time. Let's talk about that, though. Khalil Tate had some incredible blocks from his teammates, from his wide receivers, and I think his tight ends, too. But um, 
Phil maybe doesn't get as much support in that area as Khalil Tate was getting that night. But I think I think the thing that uh, impacted me the most on Saturday was Phil Lindsay after the game comes into the press conference and he is just all kinds of choked up. He doesn't want to talk about setting that record. He doesn't want to talk about how good his game was. He's just like he's bleeding and he's like all cut up and stuff and he is like really just choking back tears trying to defend Ryan Muller in the defense and Ryan Muller was sitting right next to him and Phil's just like trying to hold it together and talking about how the team's going to get it going and I mean my heart just broke for him. I mean he's we talk about this a lot but Phil is such a good guy and it's so hard to watch him that upset. Yeah, but how does he not inspire his teammates is my question. If I was playing next to Philip Lindsay, I'd want to be just like him. I'd want to have that dog mentality that he loves to talk about. I want to be Phil's dog. And yet no one has that dog mentality besides Phil. Uh, I'd give a little bit to Jeremy Irwin, but he's not quite a dog like Phil is. And so it kind of it's tough to see Phil and the way he re- reacts after losses and that kind of thing. And then to see the rest of his team react. Not in the same way. Yeah. What kind of emotionless robots are you guys? Like not wanting to just like ride for (laughs) Phil. Phil is the most inspiring person I have maybe ever been in a room with. Like he is just so dedicated to his family and the state of Colorado and this program and what he does. And I mean, if you are not just, if I was a wide receiver, I would be laying people out to block for Phil. Like I just... I, I don't know what it is. There's just something about him that makes you want to like do your job better. And I don't understand how you have somebody like that in a locker room and you guys are just not so fired up every time you walk out on the field. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree. And it kind of sucks for Phil that he's trying. It looks like he's trying. Coach Max said after the game on Saturday that he was the first one that addressed the team in the locker room after the loss. And so He's trying his hardest to try to get them to play hard, to play with that dog mentality, and he can't do it right now, and so you kind of just feel for him. I mean, this can't all be on Phil, obviously. I mean, Phil's Phil's a great guy. He's a great player, but, like, I, I mean, this is this is on the rest of the team. Like, you guys need to step up. You Last season, so much of this was Cheeto and Ted and Kello and Jimmy Gilbert and Seppo, and they all have this, like, this is our last season. We are making it to a bowl game. We're making it to a Pac-12 championship mentality. And there are players on this current team who still have that mentality, but everybody hasn't rallied around them like they were last year. And we talked about this last week, but I mean, that's just, that's a huge problem. And it's really sad to watch, honestly. Yeah. I mean, last year, everyone kind of rallied around that team. Everyone had that same belief that they were going to win the football game, no matter who they were playing. And this year, they just don't have that same attitude. And I, re- I remember alluding to this last week. It's kind of funny because now it's they're even in a worse situation. And they still have that same attitude that we've seen. So when are we going to see it pick up a little bit, I guess, the question. I think that's going to be the question for the remainder of the season. And honestly, I hope I'm wrong, guys. I, I would so love to see this offense I'm going to say this every week until it happens. I would so love to see this offense go out there and just like punch somebody in the mouth. And that's what Devin Ross told me today when I talked to him. He was like, this is the week. We are putting it together on offense. We're putting it together on defense. And we're coming out and we're playing a full game as a team. And if that is everybody in that locker room's mindset, then this is going to be a great weekend for the Buffs. And I hope that's what happens. 
Um, All right, back to the hot or not. Yeah, back to hot or not. All right, cool. Sorry, we're done. Like, whatever we were doing. Um, uh, Jay McIntyre has been... No knock to anybody else. Jay McIntyre has been, in my opinion, the best wide receiver on this Buffs team so far this year. I think he has done exactly what he is supposed to do as Jay McIntyre. I think he has been the only receiver who's been right on target. No pun intended. Yeah, we like to talk about the wide receivers in general. But just so you know, when we talk about the wide receivers in general, we really don't mean Jay McIntyre. Because that's like the one exception to the wide receivers this season. It's the one guy that just keeps on getting open. And it seems like the guy... um, that looks the most comfortable with Steven Montez or Montez looks the most comfortable with him is more of what it is, is because he trusts that Jay McIntyre is going to get open in the middle of the field and he trusts his target. And he's, I mean, coach McIntyre alluded to it during the Tuesday press conference. He said that, um, Jay gets open because he can read defenses so well because he used to play quarterback. He just kind of finds that seam in between the safeties and linebackers and, just gets open and that's just something that these wide receivers haven't been able to do and jay is the one exception to that yeah jay's had a really good season he's i'm i can't find it right now because i'm holding a stack of paperwork but jay's right up there in yards um with shay and bobo and devon he should not be like they should be so far ahead of him statistically they don't call him big play jay Big play! Oh my God, they should call him Big Play <laughs> Jay. I like or or reliable play Jay yeah, would be what I would call him. <laughs> but um, okay, let's talk about somebody else on our hot list. Uh, Chris Bounds, tight end. I have not seen. I have never the whole time I've covered the Buffs ever seen them throw a pass to a tight end. I don't think. And they threw two, two, two touchdowns, two touchdowns to Chris Bounds this week, and uh, that was huge. And Mac, we asked him the next day. Uh, not the next day, Monday at practice, we were like, are you going to use Chris Bounds like that moving forward? And Mac was like, yeah, like, of course we are. Like, look how well it worked. So I'm, you guys could see passing tight ends in the Buffs future, which is just new. Yeah, it's mesmerizing, really. Mesmerizing. No, one, <laughs> <laughs> no one really expected a tight end to break out um, this season. But, I mean, that was a great sight to see was Chris Bounds getting in the end zone. And he was also in the post-game presser, sat in between uh, Moeller and Phil. He didn't get a single question asked to him until the last question, which was just like, hey, Chris, can you just summarize your bittersweet night getting two touchdowns and then also losing? And that was the one question he got the whole press conference. But he was probably pretty happy that he made it into the post-game presser with those two big touchdowns. And I think they will utilize him a lot more because CU is really good running the football when they have a tight end blocking or if they use Chris Bounds as a fullback blocking. And that seems like when Phil is kind of at his best when he has an extra blocker in there. So I think they will use Chris Bounds in the passing game because you don't want to get too predictable that when you have the tight end there that you're probably going to run it. I think it makes a lot of sense to keep using Bounds this season because like we have said about J-Mac, he he seems to be able to get open. Yeah, and... And you're going to yell at me because I'm going to talk about the wide receivers again. But, hey, when none of your wide receivers are open, you have to start using your tight end as a receiving option. Otherwise, you are just running Phil Lindsay for however long the game is every single weekend. And that's just that's just not okay for Phil. I mean, he's he's a warrior, but he is not going to survive that. Um, so, yeah, Chris, Chris Bounds, hopefully, potentially, um, maybe adding a spark to that receiving game moving forward. Let's talk about some of the um, knots on our hot list. We... 
the first the first one is um, the wide receivers, but I feel like we maybe yes, touched on that I enough. So let's let's talk a little bit about the secondary kind of falling down on the job this week. Yeah, they had a pretty big job to do um, this weekend. I mean, as a secondary, they knew that they were going to have to make a lot of open field tackles against an option offense. Um, they had to have had that expectation going into the game. And then when the actual game happened, they weren't able to tackle. They made none him, of those tackles. By the way, it's just it's not them. It's they weren't able to tackle just him. him. Just the one, just the one Khalil Tate that was on the field that they were really struggling with. And I, I think I I was hyped up about this defense before the season started, and everybody at BSN made fun of me. I will have all of you guys know I was told that I was wrong about everybody in the secondary. Um, but I think they have had Wait. a. I don't think I said anything about that. You might not have been there for that pod. It might have just been Jake and Ryan yelling at me about Foe. Okay, so everyone besides Chase. So everybody besides Chase yelled at me about how Foe is not going to be any good and all this stuff. Um, I think the secondary has played really well all season. This week they definitely fell short. I mean, it started off so well. Ryan Muller recovers that fumble. He's like, you know, the money gang sign and smacking himself on the helmet. <laughs> we were talking about that. We were like, that seems bad in a sport where you get concussions. But okay. They um, love to smack their helmet. I yeah, they do that all the time. It's defensive players only, too. I'm pretty sure. I, I don't know if I, I've seen. I'm trying to think of like a wide receiver that just loves to smack his helmet. But They just jump and yeah. hit each other. So Ryan Muller has this interception and then, or not interception, fumble recovery, and then he like walks off the field and he's like high fiving Coach Chev and like I took some cool pictures of that if you want to see him, but um, it it just sorry the shameless self promo just kind of distracted me, but uh, bsmbest.com what's up y'all you can also find <laughs> it on Twitter, um, but yeah so. I think they've had a really good season. The start to that game gave me a lot of hope for what they were going to do. And then they just got run all over. And I know a lot of that's on the D-line, like letting Khalil Tate get free in the first place and not getting, like not being able to kind of corral and contain him. But, I mean, we talked about this a little earlier with the man coverage. It just seemed like the corners were not aware of what was happening. They weren't aware of the fact that Khalil Tate was like just running, running it in. As you bring that up, it just doesn't make any sense to me why you would want your corners to be running down the field looking away from the quarterback that is running all over your defense. Like, just switch it to zone. I know you don't like playing that much zone, but when you're going up against a running offense that isn't going to throw the ball that much, you might as well just switch it to zone just so you have a couple more guys to keep an eye on the quarterback in case he gets loose that are able to tackle him. Because Isaiah Oliver and Dante Wigley can definitely tackle in the open field, but a lot of those times they just never saw that Khalil Tate wanted to run it. So I just pulled up Khalil Tate's stats for this weekend, and while I appreciate man coverage when you have a wide receiver that is throwing the football all the time, Khalil Tate, uh, 12 of 13, he attempted 13 passes the whole night. He was just running. Like, just stop him from running. I'm not saying that if they had, like, prevented the run he wouldn't have immediately turned around and been successful at the pass because i mean 12 of 13 for 154 yards and a touchdown he has 100 qbr i i I see that i don't i'm not saying that like stopping the run would have solved everything but like the guy wasn't throwing the football he was running into the end zone with for 50 yards at a time like i i don't i we're going back to that i don't understand how they did not make mid-game adjustments i am just kind of horrified at that still Right, and t- 
it's not like if they would have adjusted to playing zone defense, I don't think it could get much worse than 12 for 13. I mean, he could go 13 for 13, but how much of a difference is that really? Well, yeah, and so he gets off a couple passes to his wide receivers. Let your safeties and your corners play to their strengths and play in coverage. Like Isaiah Oliver is so good in coverage, and then you're – and this kid's just running all over them. I mean – put him in a position where he has to throw the ball. I think that's where the buffs are better anyway. They have not had the best run defense this season. I mean, it hasn't been terrible, but. Yeah, and we'll probably get into this um, when we talk about the Oregon State preview, but Coach McIntyre during his Tuesday presser said that um, if he was the Oregon State coach, he'd probably utilize, they have like, I think it's a wider wide receiver. They used to be a quarterback, and Max said that he, if he was the Oregon State coach, he'd probably want to utilize him against CU's defense because they couldn't tackle Khalil Tate at all. So, you, I mean, I, personally, I would want to make him, you know, say, hey, maybe you should use your passing quarterback, you know, to a little reverse psychology. But obviously, they are struggle defending the run. It's like making a mistake and then being like, here's where our weak spot is if you would like to exploit it. This is right. We're circling yeah. it with a big play red marker. Play your wide receiver that used to play quarterback <laughs> because he's really fast and we're not going to be able to tackle him. Well, I asked Drew Lewis about that when I talked to him a couple of days ago yesterday. And I, I asked him, I was like, what are you guys going to do? I mean, you know that that's an area that people are aware um, you're you have like vulnerability now. And he was like, man, we just like, we have to get on top of the run because everybody's going to try to exploit that going forward because Khalil Tate was so successful. And he just seemed a little embarrassed by the whole thing. I mean, he was, he, he was proud of the way his defense played. He was like, we played really hard. We were like really trying out there, but like when you get that run over, especially by a backup and by a quarterback, not even a running back and you get run on for over 300 yards. I mean, every team on the rest of your schedule saw that every team on the rest of your schedule took notice of that and is going to try to exploit that. And it, it looks like a very exploitable area for the buffs. I don't, I don't know how they're going to clean it up that much moving forward. Cause it was just a massacre. Yeah. I mean, if I were the CU coaches, I'd probably get the toughest guy to tackle out there and just let him run circles around the defense, like play a little <laughs> smear the queers, what we used to call it. Just try to tackle him because they need to figure out how to tackle again. They need to run tackling drills all day for all of the remainder of the practices they have for the rest of the year. That is all the defensive line. Should just be have doing. Katie Nixon run in circles and see if someone can tackle. Katie him. is fast, man. Like every time I see that kid return, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Every time I see him, I always mix that up, guys, when I say it. And um, every time I see that kid return a kick, I'm like, he is so fast and he is so slippery. And I just want to watch him get loose on the offense. But yeah, have or uh, have Katie Nixon run around and have the defensive line and the secondary try to tackle him for a whole practice. I would pay to watch that, actually. That's what I'd do if I was the coach. Honestly, they need to learn how to tackle a guy in open space. And maybe throw a biscuit in there occasionally so they know how to tackle somebody with some bulk and some size. No, not to Okay, so we want to talk about somebody who's not really on our hot list, not really on our not list, but it's a subject that we wanted to touch on. And Chase just suggested that we call it the lukewarm segment of the podcast. So there's that for you guys. Our uh, lukewarm position of the week is the offensive line. Yeah, it's a very lukewarm position because they are very hot when they're blocking for Philip Lindsay, and then they're very not when they're blocking for Steven Montez. It just looks like two different offensive lines out there. 
when they're trying to do two different things. And I don't know. I was just sitting there a little confused as to why they can't protect the pass. And um, a little bit to do with that is because most of the time, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, they like to bring in tight ends and fullbacks to block for Philip Lindsay. And that's why you see a lot more holes, a lot more running room for Phil. Um, for the majority of their throwing plays, obviously not when they're trying to catch the defense off guard. They have four wide receivers out there and no tight ends. So it's those five that are trying to block the pass rush, and they really struggle with it. And I think a lot of that is because of the right tackle situation. They haven't really figured out a starting right tackle. Aaron Hagler was supposed to be the starting right tackler going into the season. Right tackler. Right tackle (laughs) going into the season. But he just hasn't been the same guy that started 10 games last year as a redshirt freshman. So that's, I think, what is really puzzling the CU coaching staff is why is Aaron Hagler just not been himself this year? And all summer long, like a lot of guys, Coach Mack wouldn't stop pra- praising Hagler for how big he's gotten, how much he's worked at, during the offseason to get bigger, to get stronger, to get hopefully better, and yet he's just kind of digressed so far this season. This past week, they started Isaac Miller, which was a little bit of an improvement um, over what Hagler has already been this season. But still, it's just disappointing, and it just looks like they haven't figured out that right tackle situation. And right now, they have three different guys that can start there, and I don't think they like any either of the three. Well, and let's let's talk about this being another area where when we talked about the defensive line, we said there's not a lot of depth. The offensive line is kind of in the same boat. So, I mean, I know some of that goes back to recruiting, but not having a ton of depth at these positions where, I mean, offensive linemen get hurt pretty often. That's like just a thing that happens. And they're in a really strenuous area of football play. I mean, they're, they have contact on every single snap that they're in for. So, or they're supposed to. Sometimes Jared Coe just runs through plays and does not have contact. But um, I just it's it's one of those areas where they need to have more depth and they need to they just need to upgrade their play there honestly because it's it's kind of unclear how much the offensive line's bad uh, pass protection is really impacting Montez, really impacting the wide receivers in that whole situation, which we're not going to get into again. But um, we uh, we are going to talk to you a little bit about the Blake Street Tavern, which <laughs> is uh, where we watch all of our away games. And Chase and I will hopefully be there for either Oregon State or Washington State over the next few weeks. You can come hang out with us. Tell us how how um, wrong you think we are about things on the podcast or right or how pissed you get that I don't get very excited about things. Yeah, you guys you guys don't enjoy Chase's uh very very soft NPR voice for some reason, but it's it's really not that Chase is quiet, it's that I'm really loud. So um don't 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 blame Chase for that. But the Blake Street Tavern is wonderful. They have great food, they have great beer, they have a ton of TVs, they have they have games downstairs, they have all kinds of fun stuff to do. And we like to go there and watch the games just because it gets so rowdy. It is wall to wall buffs fans. So do get there early because otherwise it will be jam-packed and you will struggle to find a seat. But the Blake Street Tavern is great. We love them. We love being there. And uh, There's really nothing better than a 2 o'clock game at the Blake Street Tavern. That's very real. It's like it's it's like this party, and then you walk outside and you forget that it's the middle of the day, and you're like, <laughs> oh, dang, all right. Uh, <laughs> Got the whole night. Yeah, seriously. Still have the whole night to go out in Denver afterwards if you want to because it's fantastic. Um, 
that is about all we have for you this week or for this part one of our podcast. We will be back, uh, I believe, on Thursday. We'll have another one up for you where we uh, kind of break down Oregon State. They just parted ways with their head coach, so that's interesting. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about on that other podcast. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll uh, break down some key matchups. We'll probably talk more about how the offense needs to get going and... Uh, yeah, we'll do some like matchups to watch, some keys to victory. We'll give you some predictions. Um, Hopefully, they're right this time. I feel yeah, none of our predictions were right this week. It was pretty upsetting. I'm now five and one, and I'm very disappointed about it. <laughs> I don't know if the college football playoff oh, committee oh is going to select me anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, um, you guys can follow us on Twitter at BSN Buffs, on Instagram at BSN Buffs, on Snapchat at BSN Denver. We have all the social media sites. Um, if you want to follow Chase or myself on Twitter, it is at by Chase Howell at Samantha N. Weaver. And uh, feel free to send us questions. You can DM us. You can add us, whatever you want to. If there's something you want to ask about on the pod, if there's something that you uh, really want to know about the team, we can try to – obviously, we can't get all the information, but we can like try to figure stuff out for you. Um, yeah, just go ahead and get in touch with us. And otherwise, we will be back in a couple of days. And uh, for BSM Buffs and Chase Howell, I am Sam Weaver.